0: We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners.
1: So one of our listeners, Blair...
0: Blair Wang, who's also a colleague at the business school...
1: ...found this super interesting story about NEON, the gas, and chip shortages.
0: And what a shortage in NEON tells us about global supply chains.
1: It was really interesting. So we're going to talk about that. NEON.
0: From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, an initiative that explores the future of business. And you're listening to The Future This Week, where Sandra Peter and Kai Rima sit down every week to rethink trends in technology and business. So Sandra, what are we talking about today?
1: Well, I think we're again talking about more fallout from the conflict in Ukraine And one story follows the banning of Facebook and Instagram. So Meta was branded an extremist organization. It's usually reserved for terrorist organizations. But in this case, Russia ruled that Meta was carrying out extremist activities by reporting or by allowing posts sharing what is happening in Ukraine. Hence, both platforms, both Facebook and Instagram have been banned. But the article wonders why does that not
0: extend to WhatsApp, which is equally owned by Meta, aka Facebook, but is still allowed to be used by Russian users and was not included in this ban.
1: And interestingly, the article mentions that the decision, the court ruling specified that this was due to the lack of functionality for public dissemination of information. That made WhatsApp exempt from the same ban that saw Facebook and Instagram banned in Russia.
0: And there might be some truth to that, because when users post about the war in Ukraine, then that content is accessible to everyone, whereas WhatsApp as a more communication, instant messaging focused app keeps communication between users more private, although some groups on WhatsApp can be very large. But there are likely other reasons as well. One might be that the decision to ban Facebook and Instagram is performative in the sense that It is very visible in the Western media when Facebook and Instagram are being banned, but in terms of user numbers, these platforms are not as popular as WhatsApp. So it doesn't inconvenience as many users in Russia to ban Facebook and Instagram, whereas WhatsApp is one of the most popular ways to communicate in Russia and other parts of Europe equally.
1: But it's still interesting that WhatsApp is still perceived as a kind of a private platform. So this idea of, not being able to publicly disseminate information on it, which is kind of strange given, as you mentioned, the fact that WhatsApp does have these really large groups and messages can be very easily shared from one group to another. So in terms of misinformation, disinformation, or even information, it propagates through the platform very, very quickly, which makes it unlike, you know, a text message system or something that we would traditionally associate with messaging.
0: Or maybe that is exactly why Russia keeps that app alive, because the sharing of disinformation of the propaganda that the Putin regime wants out there can be done on WhatsApp much more easily. We saw WhatsApp play a big role in incidents in Myanmar and in India, where it was among the most influential platforms for spreading disinformation. And also in terms of the platform provider, disinformation is much harder to notice and to weed out because it is not as visible as publicly available. Whereas Facebook as a platform might be able to moderate and to delete disinformation on the Facebook platform, that is not so easily done on
1: WhatsApp. So WhatsApp now remains one of the exceptions. Most other platforms have been banned, and it's only WhatsApp and YouTube, and YouTube probably because there is no real functional alternative in Russia to sort of long-form video sharing. But they're the only two Western platforms that are still currently accessible in Russia. But looking at
0: the broader picture and companies pulling out of Russia and boycotting, we've seen some contrary news coming out with The Guardian reporting that Renault, the French automaker, is actually reopening operations in one of its plants in Moscow.
1: And this really goes contrary to what we've seen over the last few weeks where many large global companies, household names have been pulling out of Russia, closing down factories, closing down restaurants, closing down retail shops and really pulling out of the country. It's interesting that Renault, after shutting down some of its plants, decided to resume car production in Moscow. the article makes the
0: point that many of the other car makers have very minor operations in Russia. And Renault since 2016 owns one of Russia's largest car maker, Avtovac, which owns brands such as Lada and contributes quite considerably to the earnings that Renault derives to the tune of about 12%.
1: What makes this story quite interesting is that the main shareholder of Renault is actually the French government. So this decision to go back and reopen factories, as you've said, is... It is quite curious that the partly state-owned
0: car maker would go back to Russia, which goes contrary in many ways to the line that Europe as a bloc of nations has taken in imposing sanctions
1: the more interesting question would be then to ask how long are they going to be able to continue manufacturing cars in russia because car makers for quite a while during the pandemic have struggled to source chips computer chips for car manufacturing. And we've seen in many parts of the world, in Europe and in the US, manufacturing lines having to stop because they couldn't access a supply of semiconductors that they needed for car manufacturing. And the
0: article mentions that it has already hit some of the other Russian car manufacturers, the other Russian car factories, Precisely because they are now at the back of the queue when it comes to sourcing chips where the sanctions aggravate the access to chips. So it remains to be seen to what extent Renault will be able to keep operations open for that reason alone.
1: So it's not only the shortages due to the pandemic and ongoing issues with supply chains around the world, but also the Western sanctions that do include a ban on semiconductor exports. But speaking of semiconductors, we found one story that
0: really intrigued us, which has to do both with semiconductor shortages and the situation in Ukraine.
1: So it's a story about NEON. The story comes from Reuters and it reports on the fact that Russia's attack on Ukraine halts half of the world's Neon output for chips.
0: Neon is a gas, and you might ask, what does Neon have to do with the production of chips, or so we ask. But fortunately, the article provides background.
1: Okay, so I didn't know this. I didn't know they used Neon to make computer chips, or phone chips, or dishwasher chips, or... Technically, the neon doesn't go into the chips. No, but it's apparently indispensable to actually making the chips because chip manufacturers use lasers to etch the patterns onto the wafers of silicon. And the lasers, turns out, work by exciting the atoms of noble gases to generate light in specific wavelengths. And then neon is the gas that 95% of them use. So neon, turns out, is really important. And neon is responsible for the red light that these lasers have
0: and neon as many people will know is used in lighting the neon lights. Neon as a gas when electrified makes a nice orange glow. It's very popular in, you know, the period from the 1920s to the 1960s so these tubes of neon can be bent into all kinds of shapes to make neon signage and neon is orange and if you want other colors it's technically not neon you have to use other gases so fun trivia facts Uh, hydrogen makes red helium yellow carbon dioxide white light and mercury for a nice blue shine
1: As you can tell, we got lost in some deep, dark rabbit hole of noble gases and other gases.
0: Not that dark. Neon lit rabbit hole.
1: Yes, let's climb back out. And it turns out that Ukraine is one of the world's leading suppliers of neon.
0: Especially the kind of purified neon that is 99.9% neon, because that is the one that needs to be used when engaging in this ultra-precise process of silicon etching.
1: So, while Ukraine produces about 70% of global neon gas exports, the purified version that is necessary for these lasers comes from a very small number of companies. And Ukraine's two leading companies, Ingas and Creoin, produce somewhere between 45 and 55% of the world's semiconductor grade neon. That's two companies alone in Ukraine produce that much. And both these companies have halted production? Because both find themselves located in the region hardest hit
0: by the invasion of Ukraine. InGas is located in Mariupol, which is at the heart of the bombardments at the moment, whereas Cryoin is in Odessa, which is not far away. But the neon that these plants use to purify is already in short supply supply because the gas is produced by steel factories, many of which have already shut down production.
1: So the raw input for making this is actually a byproduct of steel manufacturing or other metallurgical industries. So those need to function for the raw material to exist for making the neon gas in the first place.
0: Neon is derived pretty much out of thin air, but you need a lot of liquefied air to distill and the plants that can do this are part of the steel manufacturing plants. So that is also the reason why the former Soviet states are at the forefront of neon production because of the steel industry that
1: used to exist there in large numbers. And at this point, you might be saying, why are we talking about neon on the future this week? It turns out it's the same reason we spoke about cobalt last year. Remember in an episode last year that we'll put in the show notes, we spoke about how cobalt is not exactly the new oil, but the new oil in our move towards renewable energies. And as we use more and more batteries, cobalt was essential for this. And whilst we're very familiar with the economics and the supply chains and the dynamics in things like oil markets or coal markets, We tend to know very little what happens with resources that are used in things like computer chips or batteries. So things like cobalt or lithium or manganese or indeed neon or platinum.
0: So on the one hand... We don't really know what is involved, where the various resources come from, and also the complexity that goes into producing some of the products that we take for granted. So as we have these shocks to the system through COVID, through natural disasters, or now the conflict in Ukraine, it poses an opportunity to understand better the dependencies that we have when it comes to producing the everyday products that we all use and the transition away, for example, from fossil fuels to electrification, which not only drives the demand for batteries, but also for computer chips, because all these electric cars have much more in the way of electronics than a internal combustion engine, a petrol-based engine, would have.
1: And indeed, this move towards mass production of electric vehicles or the increased digitalization that we saw after the onset of the pandemic, all of this really allows us to take a closer look at the economics, the infrastructure and the complexity that are embedded behind some of these materials.
0: And so many of these supply chains have evolved in the past decades, pre-conflict, pre-pandemic, in times that were characterized by an incredible international stability. So these days, many of the complex products, such as semiconductors and microchips, draw on a very complex network of resources, many of which, for efficiency reasons, come from very few suppliers and sometimes, as in the case of cobalt with the Republic of Congo, or in the case of neon with Ukraine, from very few places indeed.
1: But these dependencies that you talk about also create huge risks in the system because the moment one of these supplies is inaccessible, whether that is because of COVID or whether that's because of weather events or a situation like the one in Ukraine, the supply for all the products that this goes into is then at risk, whether they be cars or phones or dishwashers or pregnancy tests.
0: And so if we look at this, and the article describes some of those effects, it is quite interesting that it is not necessarily the high-end chips that are being impacted here because some of the most advanced processes have moved on to specialized lasers that might not need neon, and some of the large companies like TSMC that make most of the high-end chips have stockpiled Neon. It is indeed the middle range of chips that are impacted here. So while you might still be able to buy your iPhone, you might have to do your dishes by hand because, you know, things like dishwashers and other household appliances are now already in short supply because of the chip crisis.
1: And it's important here to stress that there's two types of pressure that is posed on the supply and indeed on the demand for things like neon gas. And if we're looking at semiconductors, we've already seen quite a bit of pressure on the system because of issues with COVID-19 and a slowing down of production, but also problems with transport. We've seen power shortages in China. We've seen extreme weather events in places like Texas all put a strain on the system already. And then we've seen kind of a cyclical increase in demand for semiconductors because, again, due to COVID-19, a lot of the work has shifted online. So people needed more computers at home, more webcams, a lot of the education shifted online. We've been teaching courses online for almost two years now. And the Pandemic overall just pushed up the demand for all sorts of electronic products. So many of those are cyclical in the sense that those people who
0: have just updated all their tech during the pandemic are not necessarily likely to keep purchasing these devices in these numbers. But there are also more long-term structural changes, such as the move to battery technology. So as we move that transition, there's also an increased demand that is likely to stay here and push up demand for semiconductors of all different kinds in the midterm at least.
1: And while some of those more cyclical pressures on the system can be alleviated with things like having a stockpile of neon gas, which we've seen many companies do, including the companies in Ukraine that can still provide neon gas for, I think it was about three months because they themselves have stockpiles. But then many of the semiconductor producers having their own stockpiles in case COVID-19 was going to slow down production again.
0: And also in the wake of the Crimea crisis that already at that time raised questions about neon supply.
1: And pushed prices up by, I think it was 600%.
0: Which is also happening right now. But the problems now seem to run more deeply if we predict that the crisis in Ukraine will persist for the coming months. And with the situation in Mariupol asking questions about whether these plants will come online in the near future, the industry has to look for other sources of neon and those are not likely to come by in the time frame that the stockpile will last for. Because the article mentions that in order to bring online the plants that will be able to deliver purified neon, we're looking at about 9 to 12 months to set up new plants in other parts of the world.
1: And in the attempt to address those longer-term structural changes, we've already seen companies like TSMC, which is the largest foundry in the world. We've seen them investing, I think it was $30 billion last year and up to $44 billion this year, as reported in Nikkei Asia, to establish new foundries. We've seen China also starting back in 2014 to invest heavily in the semiconductor industries, which they also identified as one of the critical things that China needs to do.
0: We're also seeing the U.S. and Europe setting up generous subsidy schemes to entice more semiconductor manufacturers to set up new
1: plants. That is $48 billion by the European Union. And in a similar move, the U.S. has invested $52 billion in a national chip-producing capability.
0: Intel, for example, is setting up a new plant in Magdeburg in Germany, there's new plants being set up in Texas and other places. And this is partly to increase the overall output of semiconductor chips and partly to decrease issues with dependencies and work towards what might be called a semiconductor sovereignty by these regions such as the US and Europe.
1: And the sovereignty issue for something like chip making does become very complicated very quickly because it's not just the ability to make the chips themselves, which is both costly and complex to realize, but it's also, as the story highlights, all of the necessary resources that go into making these chips. And whilst Neon might be one where you could eventually build up capability in other parts of the world...
0: Because you actually pull it out of thin air...
1: In the case of something like cobalt that you need for batteries, as we've seen, the Democratic Republic of Congo had two-thirds of the global supply, but then China controlled 80% of the cobalt refining industry. So things become very complicated very quickly in a way that they weren't previously. So when we think about oil extraction and oil refineries, or if we think about coal mining and coal processing, things were a lot more straightforward and a lot more clearly visible for the end users and for the companies that needed to source these materials.
0: And when the US found itself in a resource crisis over oil, they were able to increase their own oil production. and They found ways to extract oil from sand. The shale oil production oil is also available in most parts of the world, but the move to battery technology, the move to digital means that we're now faced with a technology that is incredibly complex and that requires an almost inscrutable web of resources. And gaining access to or control over the mining of many of these resources is simply inaccessible to most countries in the world, bar a couple of superpowers that have the means to invest into the various regions where these rare minerals are found.
1: And since we often talk about megatrends here at Sydney Business Insights at the University of Sydney Business School, the resource security megatrend is indeed accelerating as we see more and more of these rare minerals, rare resources being used in manufacturing, as you've mentioned.
0: So next time we pick up our iPhones, we should be aware that the complexity that goes into creating these devices is normally hidden from us, but that these shocks to the system make them painfully obvious. And that's partly why, you know, we see shortages in consumer goods all around the world right now. And this
1: should be where we say that's all we've had time for. But remember when we used to do Robot of the Week as a segment? Yeah, I remember that. This would have been clearly a candidate for that segment. And that comes from Kawasaki, the guys who make motorcycles, who made a new, deeply weird, chaotic robot goat. We'll put this link in the show notes. And yes, it does have a video as well.
0: And it's nothing short of disturbing. Even the product announcement video of this robot goat is just weird.
1: Okay, this is a... Ridable robotic goat that was showcased last week at the International Robot Exhibition. It's called BEX and it's modeled after the IBEX, a wild goat species, and engineered together with the guys from the University of Tokyo. It moves around on four legs, it's awkward, it's super slow, and you should watch the link in the show notes. And maybe you can figure out why? And that's really all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to The Future This Week from the University of Sydney Business School. Sandra Peter is the Director of Sydney Business Insights and Kai Rema is Professor of Information Technology and Organisation. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter and WeChat and follow, like or leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any weird or wonderful topics for us to discuss, send them to sbi
1: sydney.edu.au. Can you say neon, Sandra? Neon, neon. No, 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 neon. Neon, 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 <laughs> neon. neon. Thank you. Neon, neon. Yes, very
0: good.
1: <laughs> <laughs>